Hermeneutics. The first rule. And the first rule is found on page number 24. Observation. The first principle of hermeneutics. Now I've structured this course around eight laws for hermeneutics or eight laws for interpreting the Bible. And the most important by far is the first rule. If you will learn the first rule, you will be much more competent in explaining and understanding the Bible than if you have the other seven. The first rule is by far the most important. It's the most difficult and you're thinking I'm going to say it's the most complicated, but I'm not. It's the simplest. It is a very simple rule and it's the most important and it's the most difficult. Let's see what that rule is. On every principle, we have a call-out box. So, Mugobe, can you please read the call-out box? That's that scroll. Oh, no. Is it misprinted? It's correctly printed for yours. Oh, that's terrible. Every single one is like this. And yours is printed correctly. Oh, because yours is the old book. All right, then... uh, Mugobi, if you can look at the very top page, that's supposed to be inside the the box there. I'm sorry, I don't know why this uh, computer moved it around. Can you please read that, uh, Mugobi? Principle number one, the most important skill in humanities is observing the details carefully. Underline that. Circle it. Write NB in capital letters. Put a blinking yellow light beside it. The most important skill in hermeneutics is observing the details carefully. I cannot emphasize this enough because there are how many principles? Eight principles. But principle one is like the king. Over top of principles number two, three, four, Five, six, and seven. And number eight kind of stands by itself. If number one is the king, then number eight is the queen. But this first principle controls all the others. You could say it this way. You could say there's one principle with six subpoints underneath it. Because all of the other principles that we're going to see are just part of this first principle. And the first principle is observation. From the very beginning, I want you to know what you need to understand the Bible. From a human perspective, or from, from man's perspective, from man's responsibility, what you need is to look carefully. And so with that, I want to show you the most memorable part of the course. I think in years to come, you will remember this more than anything else in the course. Go to page 79 in the back of your books. Page 79 in the back of the books. And the title of this story is called In the Laboratory with Agassiz, or Agassiz. He was a famous French scientist. And we're going to read a brief story by a man named Samuel Scudder, who wrote of his time when he was training under this famous French scientist. This is possibly the most, the single most important thing that I've learned about hermeneutics is this story. How many of you have heard this story before? Anyone? All right. He's heard it. But has anyone else? Let's read this story. We'll just trade every paragraph. 
unless the paragraph is just one line. If it's just one line, then you can read two. But let's just trade. We'll start here. Nikombela Tatan Nyalungu, if Mitasungulu with paragraph number one. Professor Agassiz, and told him I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, and finally, when I wished to study any special branch, to the latter I replied that while I wish to be well grounded in all departments of zoology, I purpose to devote myself specially to insects. Okay, because of the recording, because of the recording, let me just read those because I think it might be difficult to get the voice. But you can just follow along in your notes. This is the story in the laboratory with Agassiz, and I hope you all heard the first paragraph. When do you wish to begin? The professor asked. Now, I replied. This seemed to please him with an energetic, very well. He reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, he said, and look at it. Underline those words, look at it. We call it a hemulon. By and by, I will ask you what you have seen. Underline what you have seen. With that, he left me, but in a moment returned with explicit instructions as to the care of the object entrusted to me. No man is fit to be a naturalist, he said, who does not know how to take care of specimens. I was to keep the fish before me in a tin tray and occasionally moisten the surface with alcohol from the jar, always taking care to replace the stopper tightly. Those were not the days of ground glass stoppers and elegantly shaped exhibition jars. All the old students will recall the huge necklace glass bottles with their leaky wax besmeared corks, half eaten by insects and begrimed with cellar dust. Entomology was a cleaner science than ichthology. Entomology is the study of bugs, Ichthology is the study of fish. Remember, this man, what does he want to study? Right, do you see that from the very first paragraph? He's trying to train to study insects. And what does Agassiz give him? A fish. And the man thinks, you're wasting my time. I didn't come here to study fish. We keep going. The example of the professor who had unhesitatingly plunged to the bottom of the jar to produce the fish was infectious. And though this alcohol had a very ancient and fish-like smell, I really dared not show any aversion within these sacred precincts. That means he didn't dare act timid to put his hand, there's a big jug, and down at the bottom is a fish, and it's filled with old alcohol, keeping that fish alive, and he takes his hand and pushes it inside. But the professor is an older man, and he just grabbed the fish, so... I better do the same thing. In he goes and grabs the fish. Treated the alcohol as though it were pure water. Still, I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment. For gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. My friends at home, too, were annoyed when they discovered no amount of eau de cologne would drown the perfume which haunted me like a shadow. He means when he went home tonight that night and slept in his room, all of his roommates smelled that disgusting alcohol fish smell. And they said, hey, get out of here. You're stinking the whole room up. In 10 minutes, underline, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish, and started in search of the professor, who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned, after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate the beast 
from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of the normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but to return to a steadfast gaze. Underline that. Return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Who is his mute companion? The fish. fish. Half an hour passes. An hour. Another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at a three-quarters view, all just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary. So, with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour... I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish and with a feeling of desperation, again looked at it. I was not allowed to use a magnifying glass Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. Ah, that is right. A pencil is one of the best of eyes. Underline that. A pencil is one of the best of eyes. I am glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, Well, what is it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknowns to me. The fringed gill arches and movable operculum, the pores of the head, the fleshy lips, the lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fins and forked tail, the compressed and arched body. When I finished, he waited as if expecting more. And then with an air of disappointment, you have not looked very carefully. Underline that. You have not looked very carefully. Why, he continued more earnestly, you haven't even seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again. Look again, underline both of those. And he left me to my misery. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my tasks with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly and when towards its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not. But I see how little I was before. That is next best, said he earnestly. But I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you will be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. Now think, what is the professor doing right there? He's forcing this young man all night to think about what? What did I forget? I stared at that fish for eight hours today. What could I possibly have missed? The professor said I missed the most obvious thing. What did I miss? 
This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of my fish all night, studying without the object before me what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my discoveries, I must give an exact account of them the next day. I had a bad memory, so I walked home by Charles River in a distracted state with my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I, that I should see for myself what he saw. That could be the definition of a good preacher. Put that in your notes if you want. What is a good preacher? A man who wants the people to see in the Bible what he himself saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? Do you understand what that means? It means whenever there's a fin on the right side, there's also a fin on the left side. When there's an eye on the right, there's an? Right, everything's the same on both sides. His thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night after he had discoursed most happily and enthusiastically as he always did upon the importance of this point I ventured to ask what I should do next oh look at your fish he said underline that and he left me again to my own devices in a little more than an hour he returned and heard my new catalog That is good, that is good, he repeated, but that is not all. Go on. And so for three long days, underline, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Underline, look, 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 was his repeated command. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had. Remember, what is entomology? The study of insects. What was the best way to study insects? Look at a... Why? He tells us. A lesson whose influence has extended to the details of every subsequent study. A legacy the professor had left to me as he has left it to many others, of inestimable value, which we could not buy and with which we cannot part. At the end of eight months, it was almost with reluctance that I left these friends. What friends? The fish. And turned to insects. But what I had gained by this outside experience has been of greater value than years of later investigation in my favorite groups. And you can say amen if you want. (laughs) This, This is the lesson that began to change my life. When you want to interpret the Bible, look at the fish. Don't read books about the fish. Don't listen to other pastors tell you about the fish. You have two eyes and you've got a fish. In fact, you've got an ocean full of fish. There's the east side of the ocean. There's the west side of the ocean. Open the ocean. Put your hand down and grab a fish and look at it. Look, look, look. And I hope if you ever find me, you will find me as eager to look at the fish and to see you look at the fish And find in it as everything I found myself or any other teacher or leader. Go back to your notes on page 24. Here's a quote from John Piper. Another excellent article that I would encourage you to read. It's on pages 82, 83, and 84. Pages 82, 83, and 84. Brother, let us query the text. We will not read that here, but it's an excellent brief article 
by John Piper on the same subject. Look at the quote on page 24. It's bullet number four. Bullet number four, right at the top. John Piper says, quote, Take two hours to ask ten questions of Galatians 2.20, and you will gain 100 times the insight you would have gained by reading 30 pages of the New Testament or any other book. Slow down. Query. Query means question. Ask questions. All right, let's see now the, the great principle of observation. There's five points here in this, in this lecture, and I think it will take us the rest of the time, and then we'll practice. Number one, invest time. Underline that, time. Invest time. There is no way to look at the fish without taking time. There is no shortcut. You cannot go on the internet. You cannot download anything. You cannot take a speed reading course. There is no way to get around it. There are no shortcuts to teaching your eyes. You cannot find a shortcut to teaching your eyes. If someone wants to be a great athlete, there's no shortcut to hard work. If someone wants to be well-read in a certain field, there's no shortcut to reading. If you would gain the eyes that can see things in the Bible, you must take time. Look at this quote from John MacArthur. Quote, extended time in observation is a must for an expositor. He must resist the temptation to plunge immediately into commentaries or other study helps. Nothing can replace first-hand observation. Now, why would he say nothing can replace first-hand observation? Let's say you have a Bible verse in front of you, John 3.16. And you look at that verse for an hour and you write down what you see in the fish. And someone else opens John Calvin's commentary and finds 25 wonderful things. What's the difference between that man who opened John Calvin's commentary and you who took an hour to look at the fish? What's the difference? The one man is using Calvin. Do you think the man who used Calvin will have better insight than the man who looked at the fish? Yes, I think he will on the first day. The first day you look at the fish, if you today, it's your first day, and you try to look at John 3.16 for an hour, or you read John Calvin, John Calvin's going to have better insight than you. But if you look at the fish for an hour today and an hour next week and an hour next week and you do that for four years, then you come back and look at John 3.16 for an hour or read John Calvin, you will be past the insights you find there. For two reasons. You say, you mean I can be superior to John Calvin in four years? In this way, you can be superior. When, when MacArthur says nothing can replace firsthand observation... He says it for two reasons. You can put these in the notes if you want. Number one, first-hand observation trains your eyes and quickens your mind. First-hand observation makes your mind able to do things that it could not do before. It teaches your eyes to see things that they could not see before. How did John Calvin get to the point where he could write his brilliant commentaries. He had to look his eyes away. He had to teach his eyes to look at details. And the second value, when MacArthur says nothing can replace first-hand observation, number one, because looking will raise your mind. It will quicken your mind. It will make your eyes sharp and quick and keen. Number two, it will do something else. When you look at John 3.16 and 
discover something. There is a power in discovery that affects your soul. And you will preach and talk and pray differently if you discover the, the truth in the Bible than if someone tells you the truth. That's what I mean when I say you will be more insightful and sharper after four years than John Calvin, than you would have been if you read John Calvin. When you read John Calvin, it's like someone chewing your borevors for you. Yes, it will keep you from dying. The, the nutrients are still in that meat, but you took all the fun out of it. When you learn to look at the fish, you'll see things that you've never seen before. Can I just tell you from firsthand experience? I spend most of my time in preparation just on this principle. If I have six hours on a sermon, usually I will not read any commentaries. I don't read commentaries unless, I, usually, unless I have eight or more hours to spend preparing a sermon. Because of my life and my evangelism and what God has called me to, I usually have four to six hours to prepare a sermon. Which means I have a choice to make. I can spend two hours looking at the fish and then go to the books. Or I can say, I need to look at that fish, which is what I habitually do. Which is why if you open my computer and look at my sermons, I have my sermon notes. And most of you have seen the way those sermons, I lay them out. Then if you look on my computer, there's something that you never see if you've seen them at church. Underneath my sermon notes is page four and five and six. And it says observations. And it's just numbered one to 20, one to 30, one to 60, sometimes one to 80. Where I'm just looking at the fish and I'm writing down everything. And many times things on that page never come in the sermon. I don't even tell you those when I'm preaching. Because that's too much. I've got so many things. Maybe someday I'll mention that. But what that does is that makes the preacher, when he stands up to preach, that fills you with life and energy and power because you know, I found this. It works. I looked and God showed me. How many times has it happened that I have looked and looked and looked and looked my eyes away and filled up a page or two pages with observations. And then I've gone to Matthew Henry. If I only have time to read one commentary, it's Matthew Henry. And then I go to Matthew Henry. And how do I feel when I find in Matthew Henry that he says something that I already saw with my own two eyes? How do I feel? I'll tell you. I feel joy knowing I'm growing. I'm on the path to become like a godly man. And I know this. Father, thank you for showing that to me. Help me to give the truth to God's people. And those are the kinds of truths that stick most firmly in my soul and change me. You should learn to look at the Bible because if you don't, you might go 10 or 20 years preaching and not be changed by the Bible or be changed in a minor way when you could have been dramatically changed and grown in your godliness. Number one, invest time. If you only have a little bit of time, look at the fish. I know some of you work a full-time job and then you've got to get your sermon ready on Saturday night. If that's you, spend your time in prayer and looking at the fish. Yes, there are some times when you need to look at commentaries. But I'll tell you, if you're opening a passage and there's something very difficult in the passage and you just don't have time because you worked 60 hours that week, better that you do what with the difficult thing? Skip it. In almost every passage of the Bible... In many, the, the majority of passages of the Bible, the difficult part is not the most important part. In most of the passages of the Bible, 
There, there's difficult things out there, but in most of the passages of the Bible, the most difficult parts, wow, I don't know what that means. Well, it's not the main point of the author. Someone goes to 2 Peter, oh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, and they find where it says, the unbelievers were stupid beasts made to be destroyed. So it's, oh, yo, the unbelievers are animals made to be destroyed? What does that mean? That's very important that you study that. But if you don't have time, I'll tell you, you can preach on 1 Peter chapter 1 without fully understanding that phrase, but still understanding Peter's main point. Peter's main point in that section is very simply, do not follow the world because heaven is far greater. And if you say, well, what does he mean when he says unbelievers are animals made to be destroyed? That's an important phrase. But if you don't have time to get to the bottom of that because you're working so many hours, you pray to God and look your eyes away on the parts you do understand. I'm afraid that many people get bogged down on difficult phrases and go rushing over for technical commentaries and they miss the main point. Now, it would be great if you could read all the commentaries and if you could search out every... Wow, that's a difficult phrase. What does that mean? The best would be if you could do it all. But we're not in heaven yet, nor are we in the millennium. We're in the real world where some of us are working a lot and we're still evangelizing and we're still preaching three times. And I know pastors who struggle to get three sermons a week together when they have the whole week to prepare them. And if you're preaching three times and you've got one day to get them ready, plus to do your evangelism and to pay all your bills, observation. Number two, number two, be exact. Notice precise words and phrases down to the letter. Two great examples. In AD 374, the early church had a great contro- controversy. I believe in British English we say controversy. We had a great controversy over the nature of the Son of God. Is he God or is he merely like God? Which one? Which one's true? Is he God? Or is he close to God? One side of the debate wanted to use the word homoousion. That word means of the same substance. And the other side wanted to use the word homoousion. That Greek word means what? Now look at those two Greek words and whether you can read Greek or not, I want you to circle with your pen the difference between those two Greek words. Look at the two. Look at the fish and circle with your, with your pen the difference between the two Greek words. What's the difference? There's, they're all the same except one thing. What's different? There's a double O after that U. There's a double O yeah, on, the first one. on the first one. And what is it on the second one? A, a slash, and then another what? Another O. Between the two O's, they added that slash. That slash is a Greek letter called a yota. It's the letter I. The only difference in those two, those two words is the letter I, yota. That what? Circle that. Is there any Greek letter that is smaller than that? There's no Greek letter smaller than that. It's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And it's the difference between heaven and hell. The one Greek word means Jesus is exactly God. Whatever substance God is, he's not, he's not a man, he's not wood, he's not metal, he's not a physical substance, but whatever substance the real God is, that's what Jesus is. The second word says, whatever substance God is, 
Jesus is a different substance, but it's kind of close. Does that make sense? Those were the two Greek words that were used in 374 AD, and the difference was one letter. The group called the Arians held to the second word, homoousion, and the Trinitarians held to homoousion, or homoousion. The first word is the Trinitarians, the second word is the Arians, and the difference is the difference between heaven and hell. Because if you don't believe that Jesus is God himself, then how is he going to pay for your sin? If he's just someone like some exalted angel, how is he going to die for the sins of all the world? And they understood that. And thankfully, Homoousion won. The Trinitarian side won. Example number two. So that's an example where the smallest details matter. You need every letter. You've got to look down to the letter. Don't miss even one letter. Now let's see the next one. Richard III was defeated at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. He's the king of England. But in 1485, he was defeated because his horse lost a shoe. And this is the way the poem goes. For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, a battle was lost. For want of a battle, a kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Can I tell you the full story of Richard III? This is what happened. When Richard III went out to battle in 1485... He was nervous about the battle. So he called for his generals to get the troops ready. And then he went personally to inspect his horse. And he told the man to put on new horseshoes. And when he went, he got nervous because he thought the army is leaving now and I'm the king. I need to go with them. He said, hurry, hurry. And the blacksmith said, it takes time to put horseshoes on. Hurry, faster, faster. And he said, that's enough, let's go. And he did not put the last nail in the shoe of the horse. The king jumped on the horse and went out. They fought several battles, but at one point, the army was being scattered. And the king would ride his horse up and down the lines of the troops and tell them what to do. He was going to gather all of his troops together and get them set for the last attack. His generals said, you should be able to win if we gather all of our remaining troops on this battle and march downward and attack the enemy. So Bosworth went back and forth trying to get the troops. And that's when the shoe fell off. When the shoe fell off, the horse stumbled. When the stumble, the king went down. When the king went down, he couldn't gather the troops in time. The enemy reached, attacked, won, and took the kingdom. Details are very important. It reminds me of the Far Side comic years ago that I saw where some guys were working on the space shuttle, this great ship that has to go into outer space and a couple guys were working and they found a bolt and said what's this uh it doesn't matter and they threw it over their shoulder how many men are like that with the bible they come across words uh what's this uh keep going keep uh, find something else find something about money or tithing every detail matters number three Write the details on a separate paper or mark them in the text. Quote, a pencil is one of the best of eyes. Let me encourage you, get a pencil, a pen, get some system organized. I shared with you before about marking your Bibles. Mark your Bible. Make notes somewhere. 
Have a notebook then. If you don't want to mark in your Bible, then get a notebook and carry your Bible and a notebook everywhere you go and mark and write. The weakest ink is stronger than the strongest mind. You will forget things much more quickly than the ink will fade from the page. Mark it down. Number four, keep looking even when you think you found all there is to find. This is the principle of perseverance. Quote, first I shake the whole apple tree that the ripest might fall. Then I climb the tree and shake each limb and then each branch and then each twig and then I look under each leaf. Martin Luther. Well done. (laughs) The habit of observation grows with careful practice like any other discipline. You need to learn how to look. It is a skill that you must practice until you are disciplined. So with that, let's turn over to page 25. And section 5 is the most important. And just for those who are listening, I'm going to read through all of these questions on pages 25 and 26. And then we're just going to practice this. Ready? Here we go. Number one, there's 50 questions. Section five is ask questions. Because right now, before I read these, let me just say, we need tools and guidelines to help us observe and to help our eyes grow. These questions are not crutches for someone so that their, their arms and legs will not grow strong. These questions are more like boundaries and borders to keep you inside the right, the right field where you should be. Otherwise, you might stray into, into all kinds of areas. These questions should be the tool to help you to stay focused. So there's 50 questions. Let's read through them. Number one, who is speaking? By the way, as I'm reading these, See if you can mark the 10 most important. I've done that myself because sometimes people ask me for a list of these. So I've made a list of the 10 most important and the 25 most important. So see if you can mark which ones you think are the most important. Number one, who is speaking? Whenever you read a verse of the Bible, ask, who's talking? Sometimes it's Satan. Sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's an angel. Sometimes it's a lie. Did you know there are lies in the Bible? There are not errors in the Bible, but there are lies in the Bible. When the Bible records the speech of Satan, it often records lies. When the Bible records the speech of sinners, it records lies. It recorded lies in the book of Job several times, not just from Satan, but from Job's three friends. They told lies about him. So ask, who is doing the speaking? Number two, to whom is the verse written? Believers, pastors, Jews, unbelievers, sinners. Number three, is this verse a question, answer, argument, or proposition? Number four, is this verse part of a narrative, a poem, an epistle, a parable, or a prophecy? Number five, what ideas are being introduced, are being discussed in the verses just before this verse? Number six, what ideas are being discussed in the verses just after this verse? Number seven, does this verse start with a conjunction? How is it linked to the previous verses? Number eight, what is happening in this book when this verse was written? Number nine, What was happening in the Bible when this verse was written? Number 10, how does this verse point toward the cross of Christ? Number 11, how many people are mentioned in the verse? Number 12, what are the people doing? 
Number 13, how many clauses are there? A clause is a group of words with a subject and a verb. If you don't know that, make sure you mark it down. Circle the word clause, draw a line to the side, and then write down. Group of words with a subject and a verb. So how many clauses are there in the sentence? Number 14, what are the subject and verb of each clause? Number 15, what is the tense or the time of the verbs? Circle the word tense, mark on the side, past, present, future. Number 16, are the verbs active or passive? Active or passive, it means this. Nile kuponiseni or nile kuponisiweni. Dikochidza kana dikochidza. That's the difference between active and passive. The difference is I am saving or I am being saved. In the first one, who's doing the saving? I am saving. Who's doing the saving? Me. I am being saved. Who's doing the saving there? Someone else, not me. It's the saving is happening to me. That's passive. So which is it, active or passive? Number 17. Are there other verses that use the same or a similar verb? Number 18. Are there any negatives? A negative is no, not, without, no one, outside, Are these universal or particular negatives? A particular negative is not Judas. That's a particular negative. It means Judas is not the one. A universal negative is no man is righteous. That's a universal. It's all the men. So when you see a negative, when you see no or not or no one or nothing, ask yourself, is it, is it, All the world and all the people, or is it just some of the people? Is it only talking to the Jews, or is it talking to everyone? Is it only talking about Jesus or all believers? Who's this negative about? Number 19, are there any commands? Number 20, are there any good examples or bad examples? Number 21, who is doing the action? Number 22, What are the adjectives and adverbs? What is being modified and how? Number 23, are there any pronouns? What are the antecedents? Circle the word pronoun. Draw a line. He, she, they, them, I, we. Those are the pronouns. Chivenda. Ndi. Ni. Va. Ri. Ni. Ooh. So who are the pronouns? Who are the antecedents? That is, the antecedent is the word that the pronoun is replacing. If I say, he is coming, the antecedent of he is the guy that's coming. Who, who is that guy? That's the antecedent. Number 24, are there any prepositional phrases? A prepositional phrase is like this, of the man. In Christ, by grace. Of is a preposition. Of the man is a prepositional phrase. In is a preposition. In Christ is a prepositional phrase. By is a preposition. By grace is a prepositional phrase. Are there any pictures or metaphors? Number 26. Is this a common verse? Why? Why not? 28. Does this verse have any repeated words? 29, what are the main words? Why did the author choose these words and not other words? 30, are there any difficult or disputed theological terms? 31, does this verse list results, consequences, reasons, attributes, or activities? 32, are there any contrasts or comparisons? 33, is this verse used anywhere else in the Bible? 34, is this verse quoting any other part of the Bible? 35, are there other verses that talk about this same thing or similar ideas? 36, 
What did the original audience think when they heard this verse? 37. Why did God put this verse in the Bible? 38. What does this verse teach about man? 39. What does this verse teach about God? 40. What does this verse teach about salvation? 41. What does this verse say about Jesus Christ? 42. Are there good or bad examples that should remind us of Christ's life and work? 43. How does this verse divide into natural parts? 44. How can this verse be summarized in one sentence? If you're still marking the most important ones. 45. How can I use this verse to help myself or other people spiritually? 46. What does this verse say to unbelievers? 47. What does this verse say to believers? And then the last three are the three perspectives. What does God want me to believe when I read the verse? What does God want me to do? What does God want me to feel? There are the 50 questions. I would encourage you to use this list. When you use this list, it might take you eight hours to go through a paragraph in the Bible. But only for the first few months. You will see yourself growing. You will see your eyes getting more quick. You will see yourself answering the questions much more quickly. I would strongly encourage you to practice. If there's too many with these 50, take the top 10. Take the top 25. Use these because your mind will grow. Your eyes will become sharp as you practice. Any questions? Yes, sir.